I have a six-year-old that's really into learning, learning books, learning apps, learning shows, but I'm really grateful to have found a learning podcast for her. From the creators of the hit kid podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited to a secret order of problem solvers. On an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. My kid really appreciates these. They're only 15 minutes long, and she can stay engaged. She likes the characters. It's perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis, and I'm taking a well-needed break this month. But I want to play for you some of my best episodes, my most downloaded This episode here is called You Can't Save the Rainforest When You're Depressed, and it's an incredible conversation with Imani Barberin. She's a disability rights and inclusion activist and speaker who uses her voice and social media platforms to create conversations engaging the disability community. Born with cerebral palsy, Imani often writes and uses her platforms to speak from the perspective of a disabled Black woman. So if you are someone who has ever experienced guilt or shame over not being eco-perfect and you need some more accessibility in your life, this conversation is for you. So, Imani, first of all, thank you so much for making the time to be here. Of course. Thank you for having me. I have been following you. I almost said stalking you, but then I thought maybe that would sound creepy on TikTok. Oh, thank you. And I really like your content and I learn a lot from you. And I really appreciate the way that you express your opinions on things from like several different identities that I learn from. I'm like saltine cracker white person. And I feel like I've learned a lot about you from about race. I feel like I've learned a lot about you in the disability realm. And so I'm really grateful to sort of bring your expertise to the next little time we have together. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be on this podcast with you. So how did you come to a spot where you found yourself advocating for disability? After college, well, during college, I was kind of exploring my disability identity more. It was just kind of like hit over the head with all of these concepts about disability that had literally shaped my entire life up until that point, but I had no words to put to it. And so like kind of discovering that language, like I was hungry for it. And I wanted to understand more about myself and my community as well as my identity at the crux of being both Black and disabled at the time. Well, always, but at best, let's focus on it. And so, like, my professors were really excited to, like, they're like, go go wild with it. Like, we don't care. Like, as long as you just turn in your assignments on time, you could explore whatever part of your disability in your writing. And so I was so grateful for that. And then after college, I kind of worked as an assistant for a little while, but it wasn't really my thing. And I just, I started my blog because I really just wanted to write about disability and just talk about it with somebody, anybody. And just talk about my experiences being Black and disabled and kind of feeling like very isolated growing up. And then from there, I just started promoting it on social media. And here we are. So 
One of the things that happened to me when I got on TikTok and I sort of accidentally found this platform where I talk about mental health was that I started talking specifically about the idea of adaptive routines for people with mental health disorders. So, you know, the benefit of running your dishwasher every day so that there's a routine for someone that maybe has ADHD. We talked about the idea of getting paper plates for someone who's too depressed and doesn't have any dishes to eat off of. And really quickly, I started to get a lot of hate comments (laughs) from people who were saying, you cannot recommend this. It's so bad for the environment. And I understand the initial pushback, right? And so I would sort of say, well, here's the thing, though. We're talking about harm reduction. We're talking about adaptive routines for people with mental health disorders. And But what surprised me, and it's sad to me that it surprised me, because what it tells me is that this is the attitude in general, and I just woke up to it in the last year, was people would come back and say things like, you being sad is not an excuse to kill the earth with paper plates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really wrapped up in like white supremacy, and I feel like it's one of the very few things white people are actually passionate about. And so they see climate change is a threat to the life it's a threat to all of our lives and so they're virulent in their hatred of disabled people when we say things like that's just not feasible for us like we have we're creating these routines so it's accessible to us but it's alarming to say the least and what i was doing some reading around that time and one of the things that sort of jumped out to me and it wasn't specifically about mental health disability but it was just about disability in general when it came to climate change the demographic that is one of the most impacted by the harms of climate change is the disability community. And they were talking specifically about some things that happened like in Hurricane Katrina, where the amount of people that died who were disabled because they could not get out, people could not service them, they did not have access to the things that they needed, was way overblown in terms of like disability rate in the population. Like it should, it was an unconscionable amount of people with disabilities. Yeah, I mean, that's always the risk. And so it's always really upsetting when people say that disabled people just don't care about the environment because we're telling you what we need, but it flies in the face of your performative activism or their performative activism. And then when you look at the actual numbers about it, disabled people are the most affected by climate change. We cannot, I mean, if you ever see videos on TikTok, there's several videos of like, kids in wheelchairs or kids on crutches and the fire alarm at school goes off and nobody thinks to grab this kid, right? Like nobody thinks to grab them. That is literally how we deal with climate change. We leave disabled people behind. And so like this pervasive ableism behind this environmentalist movement is really flying in the face of this goal of preserving the earth for all of us. Yeah, and I think it's no mistake either that the two highest groups for disability in the country are indigenous people, first of all, land back, and black people. (laughs) Like, two demographics of people who this country has been trying to eradicate for centuries have the highest rates of disability. People who consider themselves environmentalists have no problem doing away with these demographics of people. And I mean, if I had to guess, it would seem obvious that the role of white supremacy is a huge role in why these populations are seeing higher rates of disability. Oh, yeah. I mean, environmental ableism is real. If you don't have access to clean drinking water, that means disability. If you don't have access to doctors that believe you, that's disability. If you have structural racism 
from institutions, that's disability. So it, ableism and racism are interwoven so deeply that it's alarming to me that people will be so overtly ableist and then claim themselves to be anti-racist. You can't be one without the other. Do you ever feel like sometimes as white people, like we want so badly to be oppressed and maybe we found that in environmentalism? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's two things. I think that like white people want to be oppressed. And so they found, they latched onto environmentalism, but simultaneously it's one of the few things that when you advocate for it, it doesn't have a voice of its own to disagree with you to say that you're not advocating for me correctly. It's more of a pet. Yeah, it's the pro-life movement of the left. Like, the environment is a perfect victim. So, because as a white person, I get to be simultaneously the victim and the savior. Yes, exactly. And who wouldn't want that? And I know that people sometimes bristle at the idea that white people want to be oppressed, but I'm someone who came from the evangelical church. I'm still very much a person of faith, but I'm sort of deconstructing my evangelicalism. And I've never been offended by that only because, like, when you go to church and the pastor tells you, like, you're on the right side, you're for God, but they don't know, and they want to stop you. And, you know, we're going to persevere and we're this and it's like, that feels good. Yeah, it does. I mean, I grew up in the church. So I'm very familiar with all of the same rhetoric that you are. And one of the things about white supremacy is that it lacks nuance. And so whenever you think of yourself as a savior, or as the one helping or on the righteous side, everybody else is on the wrong side, right? It's not true. There's nuance to literally everything. And so um, when white people position themselves as environmentalists and people are fighting back and be like, listen, this is not as inclusive as you think it is, then everybody else is wrong. This is the exact same positioning, regardless of the argument. It's the trump card. It's the ace of spades. As long as I'm on the right side. And you know, it's interesting. I see sort of cues of that show up a lot in some of my content where somebody comes in at the most recent one was we were talking about like the breast is best campaign mm-hmm. and people come in and they really think as long as I'm on what I believe to be the quote unquote right side of this information, it doesn't matter who I'm harming. Like I'm absolved of who I harm, who I step over as long as at the end of the day in this sort of black and white non-nuanced thinking I'm on the right side of the issue. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I've seen some of this most like disgusting ableism and racism towards the indigenous community who is demanding land back and rightfully so. Like every single indigenous practice, regardless of whether it involves meat or not, is more sustainable than what white people are proposing. And yet people ignore them because it's more comfortable to believe that you're in the right simply because you, you're saying something when you're not. Like, you know, these practices have been in place for thousands of years. And just simply to have the arrogance to say it, to look at a community who has been living with so few resources for so long based off of ancient practices and just be like, no, I don't like that. I discount it. It doesn't apply to me. Like, that's arrogance. That's white supremacy. And it will kill us. It, it will literally kill us if we do not listen to communities who've been doing this for centuries. So one of the things that I heard you say one time in a TikTok, you said that COVID is not just a mass mortality event. COVID is a mass disabling event. And I thought about that for days. And 
you know, it's obviously a physically mass disabling event. We have people who are now long haulers with their physical health. But the other thing that I thought about was that it's also mass disabling psychologically. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like the amount of people that never dealt with mental health symptoms or maybe were able to manage these mental health symptoms are finding themselves struggling in a way that they weren't before because of all the circumstances around COVID. And I thought that was such a thing we don't talk about. Yeah, I mean, I would even argue that people who never were diagnosed with COVID have exacerbated mental health symptoms because of this sheer isolation if you were taking it seriously. And so there's going to be a ton of people that are, you know, coming out of this, you know, with agoraphobia and anxiety and depression. Um, and it's, I think that people are at a breaking point, you know, in terms of the mental health, which is very scary because we simultaneously do not have any infrastructure for mental health care in this country. Like, I think I read somewhere that, you know, our prison system is the largest mental health system in the country. That's, that's why. Why is that a thing? And so, yeah, there's going to be tons of people who are dealing with mental health care for the very first time who don't know how to reach out to a health care provider. And because hospitals are yet again at capacity, are not going to be able to get to see a mental health care provider or, you know, be admitted if they choose to for mental health care. So, yeah, we really don't know the long lasting repercussions of COVID societally and interpersonally. We won't know those things until decades from now. And one of the things that I found sort of fascinating was when people push back so hard on this idea of adaptive routines. You know, when I thought about this term eco-ableism, you know, what came to mind for me was sort of the plastic straw debate, (laughs) which was sort of my most recent memory of the big environmental push that sort of left people with disabilities behind. And that was a big conversation. And and so I'm curious if, you know, for someone who's listening, that maybe this is their first time thinking about these types of issues. Can you give us other examples of ways in which the environmental movement has left people with disabilities behind? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, the straw bands were my personal hell. Like I never, (laughs) I never want to talk about them again. I dislike them. I don't ever want to talk about them again. But no, I mean, I do all the time because people just never let it die. So even, you know, environmental preparation routines that people tweet out are ableist because they simply do not take into account. Like one of the recommendations for people to prepare for an emergency environmental disaster is to collect one month's worth of medications. In what world? People are struggling to pay for insulin from month to month. And you're asking somebody to just save some insulin for literally a rainy day, that's not possible. You know, there needs to be infrastructure with that. And people are always like, well, you could just siphon off a little bit here and there. I'm like, that's not how medication works. There's also the idea that single-use plastics, like you said, are unnecessary to disabled people. Disabled people, we pay 28% more of our income than non-disabled people just to have the same quality of life because of inaccessibility and little things like having to do the dishes, having to take the trash out, having a cleaner to help us, um, having an assistant to help us. And people are like, well, you're contributing to plastics. Why can't you just wash the dishes like everybody else? Because we can't do everything like everybody else. You've been trying to tell y'all. And people get really belligerent when you bring up that fact. And I always kind of throw it back in people's face, you know, all the KN95, all of these you know, medical masks that we're now wearing for COVID-19 that doctors are wearing to keep you safe are made out of plastic. There's far less pushback when it comes to keeping non-disabled people alive 
than it is to keep disabled people alive because we they do not believe we deserve to live in their heart of hearts. And that's what's one of the things that's so dangerous about ableism is that we are taught from a very young age to praise eugenics in our society. And the minute, the minute you ask somebody how their beliefs impact the disability community, if they're progressive, they almost always flip on a dime and start acting like we don't deserve to live, like literally on a dime. I've talked to people who are pro-choice. And then as soon as I bring up the fact that disabled parents want to keep and have their ch- have and keep their children, they'll be like, oh, well, they should be sterilized, like literally on a dime. And that instinct is going to harm our entire society. Because when we think about, like I said before, the racial breakdowns of disability, you cannot be anti-racist without being anti-ableist. And so the same thing applies to environmentalism. If you're telling a certain group of people that the way that they survive everyday life doesn't matter and that they should do what you tell them to do without any sort of alternatives that are actually feasible to that community, you're literally saying to them, I don't care if you live or die. Because a lot of the things that people think is frivolous for the disability community is quite literally life and death for us. And so that instinct is going to do more harm than it could ever do any good. You know what it reminds me of is every time somebody dies of COVID, the first thing that gets asked is, well, did they have any underlying health conditions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. People will say that automatically. I'm like, does their life matter any less because they did? Or And people really do tell on themselves when they ask that question. And I get why they're asking. I think there's this fear of, I want to believe this can't happen to me. I want to other myself. Like if I'm not somebody that has some type of disability, then maybe I don't have to deal with the existential anxiety around the fact that I too can die. Yeah. And that's that cockiness again, because we're in America. Like (laughs) the sad matter of fact is that not a lot of us have access to regular healthcare. So the idea that somebody can walk around thinking they're healthy is just false. If you haven't been to the doctor in a year, you have no idea what's going on, what underlying conditions you have. Even if you are seeing your doctor regularly, you may or may not know what's actually going on with your body. So the idea that it's only immunocompromised people dying is only immunocompromised people that we know of. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, The clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric and it even stays soft wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash struggle, promo code STRUGGLE. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, 
and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com struggle. That's rocketmoney.com struggle. Rocketmoney.com struggle. Well, and when you talk about COVID being a mass disabling event, even for people that don't get COVID, think about the amount of women that didn't get their mammograms in 2020, because, you know, the risk benefit at the time was, you know, let's not go out, let's not go to the doctor, let's push anything that's not urgent. And like, some of those women have cancer that was not caught. Exactly. You know, even people who, because there's certain medications you have to be blood tested for, may never have gotten those medications. You know, the people who have lupus and who, when hydrochloroquine was trending or whatever, could not get their medication. Their illnesses were exacerbated as well. People who could not get chemo treatments because hospitals are at capacity. People who could not, even like minor things can turn into disabilities if they're not treated. And with hospitals at capacity, that's more likely to happen. So you can never say from one day to the next that you're not disabled. That's just not possible. I'm still really like stuck on your comment about how, you know, when we talk about what the general public or what a healthy person needs to stay healthy, no one bats an eye, even if that's a bunch of plastic. Everyone needs a mask now. Everyone needs gloves now. Okay, let's do it. Because, you know, we have to, obviously. If you tell them, that same person, that somebody with a disability needs something of disposable plastic to live, you're totally right. We do have this attitude of, well, you're just making it up, or you're just being indulgent, or you can find another way. And I think I'm truly simultaneously blown away at that connection and like sad at the knowledge that obviously that's true. And I feel like I wake up to pieces of this more and more. Yeah, it's one of the most upsetting things to learn about society is that like, you know, I remember somebody stitched my video and said like, I did not believe you when you said that most people hate disabled people. And I was like, yeah, that's not something I lightly say. I may be jokingly make a joke or be sarcastic about it, but it's very real. This disdain that society has that, you know, the thing that society hates most about disabled people is that we've survived it despite its best efforts to kill us. And that's the truth. And so whenever people question what we do to stay alive, they're really questioning, why are you alive? Like, why? If your life is going to mean mine, then why would somebody less than me want to stay alive? I mean, and not to mention, you know, we haven't even touched on how much capitalism has to do with this. Because if I'm taught from a young age that I'm only worth what I'm able to produce, what I'm able to work, I mean, obviously then that belief is going to color the way that I see someone who, in my view, can't produce or can't contribute in the way that I can or even at all. Yeah, not only can't, but there's this perception that, you know, disabled people really aren't as disabled as we say we are and that we won't contribute as much as we should, which is a very important distinction because then we, you know, we restrict social safety nets based on this perception that people won't contribute if they get the necessary resources or they won't participate in work or life if they have access to health care, which is why our health care is actually tied 
to our employment because of racism, because a lot of jobs, a lot of these jobs that came with health insurance were mostly filled by white people. And that's why our healthcare is tied to our employment. But yeah, capitalism is really like a mind bender when you think about the ways in which disability plays a role. And a lot of people disable themselves with this idea too, that they need to hustle and prove that they're better than everybody else or prove that they're not as lazy as those other people who were just leeches on the system or whatever. So all around is very damaging. One of the things that I heard you say in a TikTok was you were talking about, because sometimes people will say, well, obviously, if someone needs that plastic, they can have it, but the re- everybody else should be. And I thought you had a really interesting point where you said, like, we can't play that game. Yeah. One of the things that, like, it should be abundantly clear to everybody is that things do not become available to disabled people unless non-disabled people want them you know, work from home, telemedicine, all these things only became available because it became necessary for non-disabled people. Now transfer that over to the plastic and, you know, recycling debate. If we don't have plastic straws, if you don't have plastic cutlery or paper plates, there's no way disabled people are getting them because not only will they not be available, but also many places they'll just be scarce, which means the price will go up, which means a lot of disabled people won't be able to afford them. And contrary to popular belief, not a lot of us have, you know, access to assistance or aids or people that will help us. Like, that's not a thing that happens. So they're literally, like, piece by piece, piece of plastic by piece of plastic, killing off disabled people with a lot of their ideas. When you talk about sort of exploring your identity as a disabled person, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what I'm about to say next, because whenever I talk on my channel about adaptive routines, and I talk about things like if what's going to get you to eat today is a prepackaged salad, like you need to buy the prepackaged salad. And when I get pushback from people about, you know, disposable toothbrushes, and they'll say, well, you know, you can't promote this to people because, you know, we're all going to kill the world with our disposable toothbrushes. But one of the things that I find is that a lot of people, and this might be true of other disabilities too, but in particular, a lot of people that I see with mental health disabilities, they don't quite know whether they are disabled enough to deserve what they see as, well, you can have it if you quote unquote really need it. Yeah. That's the thing I see a lot in my advocacy is that at least people, you know, who are coming into their disability identity will tell me, oh, I didn't know that like I could do that. And we're also, it's not funny, but it's also kind of very just sad in a way because whenever we hear functioning labels as disabled people, particularly in like the disability justice movement, we cringe because this is the purpose of those functioning labels. Like high functioning, low functioning. It's this way of setting up a hierarchy of who needs help and who does not. And we reinforce that every single day with our language and with our perceptions of what high functioning versus low functioning people need. And people think that just because they're on one end of a spectrum versus the other, that they don't need as many supports or they'll pass judgment on somebody else for navigating the world in a different way and saying, oh, they're less than, they just, they're worse off than me. When in reality, you just need what you need, right? Like you don't need to add qualifiers to it. You don't need to beg for acceptance from non-disabled people because honest to God, I do not care what those people think. Like (laughs) I have to survive them every single day. You think I'm going to give them the piece of purchase in my brain as well? Like they don't have a lot of land up there. They just know, like, I don't care. (laughs) So yeah, like these functioning labels, play like a very serious role in the way that we talk about disability 
And people don't even understand, like, once they come into their disability identity, just how ingrained they are in us and how damaging they are. And I really hope that people kind of deconstruct that because you're going to need what you're going to need. You're not better or less than anybody else. Some people have more accessibility needs than people have less. Some people need you know, plastic straws. Some people need like sippy cups. Like it doesn't stop passing judgment on what you need to survive. You just do what you have to to survive. That's the only thing people can ask of you. One of the things that was really hard for me postpartum both times with my kids was brushing my teeth. And I actually got postpartum depression and anxiety with my second who was born three weeks before the pandemic. And it was the word that comes to mind now is suffering. Like it was so difficult. It was so hard. And I'm someone who, for the most part, like I had addiction really, really early on. I had some sort of diagnoses floating around, but then like for the most part of my adult life was pretty stable mentally and physically and otherwise. So to go through this pandemic and all of a sudden feel like I'm not that stable anymore, despite being a therapist, being mature, having all of this, you know, education and experience was interesting. And it was, it got harder and harder. And I tried lots of sort of, oh, I'll put my toothbrush in the sink at the kitchen. I'll put it on my list of closing duties. And what I finally did a couple weeks ago, because I started having tooth pain and I was like, I'm going to have to go back to the dentist. I also have a complete phobia of dental work. I broke down and bought myself a box of 144 pre-pasted toothbrushes. And for the first time in 18 months, I've been brushing my teeth every day. And so I also have ADHD. So I think there's some executive functioning issues around it. And, you know, not having a nine to five job where you have to get up, go to the vanity, do your things. And I found myself, even though I talk all the time about, you know, you need what you need, you know, using resources is not wasting resources. You need what you need. I have had so much guilt over it. I haven't even made a TikTok about it because I've thought I just, I can't justify it. I'll never be able to convince people that I'm not just this wasteful. And what I did in my mind to try and sort of resolve this like cognitive dissidence was I started thinking about, okay, what in my life could I take out? I'll stop using paper towels. I'll, that's what I'll do. I'll stop using paper towels and I'll stop getting Starbucks. And that way it'll sort of even out. So I'm not doing more. And that'll be my justification that I can tell people. Well, I cut these things out. So I'm not really, my footprint isn't bigger. And what hit me all at once was, oh my God, paper towels and Starbucks cups are not morally superior to pre-pasted toothbrushes. And yet somebody somewhere who is able-bodied, able-mind set the acceptable usage of plastic and said, you know, nobody is going to judge you for using paper towels. And there might be some people that will roll their eyes at your disposable Starbucks cup, but like you getting takeout once a week, nobody is going to come and give you a death threat for that. Yeah. And that's the wildest thing about ableism to me is that ableism is so pervasive that people I have never met in my life, people I will never meet, people I don't even know, don't even have a concept of, cannot even imagine their faces have an effect on how I live my life because we have been recycling these exact same perceptions about disability, about wastefulness over and over and over again. People who do not like who people who I would not blink twice at are shaping the way in which I live my life. So I feel less guilty for them. I don't know them. It's just wild to me that somebody who 
is, you know, I want, this is the best ever. I one time had a woman shame me for saying that I ran my dishwasher even when it wasn't full, because that's what allows me to overcome the executive dysfunction of like being able to keep up with my dishes. And I went to her page. I'm not kidding you, Imani. She was a travel blogger. You gotta be kidding me. This woman had been on at least eight airplanes in two years. No, no, no. See, that's the thing. Like, because that's the thing. Like, their luxury trumps your necessity. Like, I'm just trying to brush my teeth over here. I know that people have these ideas that maybe if I tried harder, I could do it in a more sustainable way. And I get it because I have those own internal voices. But I finally did almost take my own medicine and go, well, Casey, you know what? It's been 18 months. And it's been at least eight months of you trying with self-compassion, but very much trying to find a routine in your life that will make this part of your health successful. And at the end of the day, they're probably going to use just as much disposable plastic to fix your fucking teeth at the dentist if you don't start going to find a way to brush your teeth. (laughs) I understand that completely because I have trouble brushing my teeth too when I get into depressive episodes. I have generalized anxiety disorder. And then I also have what they like to affectionately call double depression. So like I struggle with the same things. And I also grind my teeth when I'm stressed out. So like, I remember like, just my teeth were so bad, I bit into a chip and it cracked my tooth like in half. So my teeth are like very sensitive because of the, the sheer amount of anxiety that I've had my entire life. So I understand completely, like the, in the amount of like plastic bags that go into, you know, you getting your free, you know, take home toothbrush after you spend four hours at the dentist of them fixing your teeth. And you're just like, well, I guess it is what it is now. But yeah, like why does her luxury, like she's doing worse for the planet than you are doing just to survive your day. Like the audacity it takes to look at somebody else's life and be like, well, you're ruining the planet. I don't do any of those things. But I'm going to go to Bali for like two weeks and I'm going to not pay as much for food to underpay, you know, the workers that are indigenous to that area and, you know, ride on a moped. Yeah, the issue really isn't that there's an objective amount of waste you're allowed to produce. It's that you can't produce it as a disabled person. Right. That's wild. Listen, any space you take up, when people do not expect you to live is too much space for other people. They do not care. They think that, you know, you living is a luxury. It is a privilege. I mean, they could take it away from you at any second and make past judgments of your entire time here. And then the real messed up part is when they use your life to inspire themselves, but leave you in the dust. So you get to be inspiration porn. That's like the role that capitalism has made acceptable like that's the only acceptable role yeah i always say inspiration exploitation is an ableist society placing value on a disabled life where in which they do not find any otherwise that's the function of capitalism on disabled bodies we take advantage of these stories and we present them to disabled people and non-disabled people and say there but for the grace of god go i you know that type of thinking when in reality we've left disabled people to die at every turn in this country. And your inspiration is you just surviving that. And I mean, we haven't even touched on the reality that the individual carbon footprint is like laughably. It's just like 
20%, right? Not really going to turn things around. For better or for worse, it's really just not going to have an impact if we can't move things at a political level. And it must be scary that the people who are willing to move things at a political level still manage to leave people with disabilities behind. Oh, yeah. Like the reason why I don't revisit the straw man argument very often is because we got death threats. Like people were telling us, oh, you should kill yourself. Disabled people don't deserve to live anyways. We'll just let them die off over straws. Like it's the most absurd thing. Like when you just say it, like it's just over straws. But it, it was true. People were telling us that, you know, we'll compassionately euthanize disabled people if it comes to it. Like, it's like the liberal version of when conservatives blow up abortion clinics because they don't believe in murder. Right. Like they kill doctors. and They're like, well, he was a murderer. Right. Like, and that's the scary thing. Like I said, people will shift their beliefs the instant disability is introduced. And that instinct is, gets a lot of people killed all the time. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Remember in 2018 when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Ultra Lotto in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. You can walk so far to the left that you just loop back around and hang out with eugenics. <laughs> Right. Like, and people think that we're kidding when we say, like, people believe in eugenics, like, hardcore. They really do. They do not think that they're just as bad as some other people. Because, like we said before, white supremacy lacks nuance. So if I'm in the right, everybody else is in the wrong. That's super fascinating. And, you know, with the conversation right now with the Texas abortion ban, one of the things, you know, when you, and you were recently talking about the rate of sexual assault on the disabled community and how, you know, when we get sort of blindly without nuance into something without being able to consider disability. And and you were talking about how sometimes sterilization was about preventing sexual assault. 
And one of the things that came to my mind was that, and it was so horrible, this politician basically using the excuse that, you know, I think it was like up to 40% of people or babies with Down syndrome are aborted once that found out that they have Down syndrome. And he was trying to sort of conflate, like, this is why this is a really righteous, like, we can't let anybody get abortions, which was really kind of disgusting. But there is this side of abortion where you can get so blindly pro-choice that you don't stop to have the nuanced conversation about the amount of ableism that goes into that choice when it comes to, you know, being able to find out that your fetus in utero has a disability. Yeah. And the abortion debate is very tricky for a lot of disabled people because, you know, I had relatives telling my mom to abort me when my mom found out I would likely be disabled. And But my mom and I are both pro-choice regardless. Like my mom still carried me to term, but she's very pro-choice. And my mom always reiterated to me, like growing up, like I wanted you, like I still want you. I want you as my daughter, but I still reserve the right to have a choice and for you to have a choice. And people really lack those conversations. And it's really irritating just how often disabled people are used as pawns in this argument over pro-choice or pro-life. And nobody really asks us what we need. You know, not a lot of disabled people even get sexual education. Not a lot of disabled people even get sexual health care. When I was talking about the story about people who sterilize disabled people, it's not to prevent rape. It's to prevent children. They're not actually to prevent the rape. They're just trying to prevent the children. And so, like, that's the more devastating part is, like, they're not even trying to address the root issue to a lot of these problems. They know that the abuse is going to continue. They just don't want any children birthed to disabled people. Yeah, the politician that was talking about, you know, oh, well, you know, it's just so ableist to abort a Down syndrome, a fetus that has Down syndrome. And it always comes across to me like it's this, like, gotcha moment. Like, we know that the lefties are into not being ableist. So what do you say now? Gotcha. And it is not, it is being a pawn. It is also a miscalculation of the left, too. So like, it's like, they will 100% be like, oh no, like, like, what are you talking about? They're like, yeah, what of it? Yeah, exactly. But I think one of the things that is so irritating about that argument about people with Down syndrome being aborted is, that like if they had the social services in place for disabled people to survive once we take our first breath rather than us just being in utero, less people would probably make that decision. Like the nature of us being pawns in a lot of these arguments is to just ignore us once we're alive regardless. So I don't like I hate that argument because I know how difficult of a decision it is for a lot of, you know, pregnant people to make, you know, that choice whether to have an abortion and have an abortion whether because of it's a disabled child or might just be a disabled child. That's a hard decision to make. And I think that people just erase the fact that if we did better by disabled people who were alive already, people would not feel as pressured to make that decision. Yeah, it's kind of the breakdown of the whole pro-life argument in general, which is if you really wanted to reduce the amount of abortions, you would make it not suck so bad to be a parent yeah. who is unsupported or and a child who can't, doesn't get the social safety net. Well, I mean, it also points to the racism of the pro-life movement, which is that they don't expect these children who, these unwanted children, these pregnancies that are carried to term out of assault and, and strife to actually be members of society, a lot of these children 
are shuffled into the prison system. Like that's the entire point. You know, a lot of white people want a white ethno state and then to arrest and incarcerate children of color. Then like that's the end point. And so like even the argument that we're trying to make is, you know, irrespective of this idea that race plays a role, it very much so plays a role. And I think the right has projected outwards decades what they hope this moment in history will do for white supremacy. And so, yeah. You know, you started our conversation by talking about how, for lack of a better term, anti-ableist. And what I think has been interesting is as we've been talking, we're sort of naturally, not even jumping, but like we're naturally having to talk a little bit about white supremacy and talk a little bit about the abortion debate, talk a little bit about indigenous rights, talk a little bit about, and it's, it really is so entwined. And I feel like, well, and I want to thank you because I feel as though even having this conversation with you has been illustrative of that, that it's just been even impossible. It's like, we can't sit down and go, okay, we're just going to talk about eco-ableism for 45 minutes no, like by necessity, we had to sort of foray into all these other identity intersections and issues. And so that, I feel like that sort of makes your point so beautifully. It's one of those things where like, my boyfriend always makes fun of me because if anybody triggers a disability conversation to me, I will always bring up my statistics about how it affects racially. Uh, I mean, and that's also the reason why we're seeing a lot of these Republican bills that look like how to menus on how to exclude disabled people because a lot of the areas that they're excluding and cutting and restricting voting access fall along the lines of things that have aided disabled people in particular disabled people of color in voting in past elections so yeah it all connects and i think that disability is kind of like the crux of a lot of different movements that i don't think people really realize can be used against them. Because like I said, that instinct is very frightening and it will turn on a dime to say, oh, those people don't matter. But then when you actually look at the numbers, you're actually being like, oh crap, that would actually eradicate an entire group of people. And I feel like ability in particular, physical or mental ability is always like the unrecognized privilege. Like anytime I've brought up issues of privilege on any of my content channels, there's always like the disaffected, lower income white person that's like, I really didn't have privilege because they kind of do their list. Or I sometimes I get it from women where they'll say, you know, if I can keep my house clean, you should be able to keep your house clean. And at the end of the day, they're like, well, I didn't have any privileges. I can't afford a maid. You know, I didn't have these things. And you're like, the fact that you can stand for 10 minutes is a privilege. Yeah, I call them... <laughs> I like to make fun of non-disabled people a lot just to keep them on their toes. <laughs> and I call them like celebrating their default setting. Like, you're like the default setting. Like, I get it. You could do all these things. But like, I don't care. I'm still going to have to do what I have to do. Because the truth of the matter is, is that because of a lot of this savior behavior, they believe that there's always going to be somebody to help. That's just not true. And that there's always going to be somebody that will rise above and, you know, really make a difference. And the social media has really impacted and kind of warped our perception of how we as a society help one another because we're doing a lot of this stuff on camera. We're filming people at their worst moments needing help for likes. And people seem to think that that's the norm. It's not. Like, that's not normal. It's not normal that people are going to just rush up to me and help me. Most of the time, 
people are just grabbing at me for fun. So like, it's not like people are going to actually be grabbing at me to help me nine times out of 10. And if they do, sometimes they actually wind up hurting me. So this idea that like people have the resources that we need and we're just taking advantage of the system is kind of this like pervasive idea that kind of started with Reagan and, you know, the welfare queen stereotype, which extended to black women, particularly who were disabled, that were leeches on the system and that anybody who's taking advantage of a social safety net doesn't actually need it. Reagan can be traced to a lot of ableism in the country, in the United States particularly the way he weaponized racial stereotypes along the axis of disability. I feel like, so if, if you're, someone is listening to this podcast and, you know, you're resonating with maybe some of the things we've talked about, about, you know, you need what you need. And you're still kind of hearing that inner voice that says, oh, not me. No, I think maybe I'm just lazy. I just want to take a minute to say that as a therapist, I have seen so many clients I've seen so many clients with mental health issues, with addiction, seen clients with physical disabilities. And I have to say, I've never met someone who's truly lazy. There's no such thing. Like, there's really no such thing as lazy. There are people that can, and there are people that just are not able to. And we have this perception that they won't. Again, it's going back to this idea that people just won't do the right thing. Whereas there's not enough services and supports for people to be able to survive. And so they're just struggling a lot of the time yeah and i always say like don't get me wrong i mean entitlement exists exploitation exists there are definitely people out there that feel like they have more right to labor to to leisure and rest than somebody else does and so it really should be these people breaking their backs and working so that i can rest but that's not laziness that's entitlement yeah Right. Like the person listening to this podcast who's like, oh, God, I think I would probably finally get my teeth brushed if I had pre-pasted toothbrush. Like you're not lazy. That's not it. Like the things that you're thinking you would help you survive the day with meet your basic needs. That's not laziness. Right. And it's just you creating accessibility where you can. Like that's the goal. That's what you need to have happen. So like stop passing judgment on yourself. I mean, honestly, like my mom. My dad always is, I have ADHD too, so my brain jumps all Like, I haven't been diagnosed yet, but I'm 100% certain the way my brain works. Like, it's just, but my dad used to tell me, like, I used to hate going to the gym. I still hate going to the gym to terrible degree. I really hate it. But my dad always used to say, who cares what they think? They're not going to be there when you're struggling. None of these people who are staring at you, none of these people who are passing judgment on you would ever lift a finger to help you at all. So why do you keep taking into account what they think about what you need to do to survive when they're not going to be there? You need what you need. Right. So there's probably some other people listening that maybe aren't necessarily resonating with that message, but they're realizing that they have never really given a ton of conscious thought to ableism or to eco-ableism or maybe just ableism in general. And I'm curious if someone's listening and they're thinking, oh my gosh, these are concepts that I have totally never thought before, but totally seems like something I should be aware of. Do you have any recommendations on where you think someone should start if they wanted to educate themselves further or if they wanted to sort of do the work to not be a part of movements in a way, in such a way that they leave behind the disabled population? Yeah, absolutely. So I always recommend since Ambalid's disability justice work, they are excellent. There's also an organization called the Strategic Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies. They're working out of Louisiana right now. 
and they work internationally to prepare disabled people in particularly for natural disasters and climate change. They're run for and by disabled people, which is remarkable to see people in wheelchairs like climbing rubble to get other disabled people out. Props to them always. There's also several articles that I wrote about climate change and disability. There's a couple of articles on my website on the straw ban, which again, I refuse to revisit. It's traumatizing. There's a climate change article about disabled people. Um, there's this, the Center for American Progress also does a lot of pieces on the intersection of disability and climate change, as well as disability justice in general. They have a disability justice initiative that you can look at. So those are some of the resources off the top of my head. And where can they find you if they want to follow you? Oh, my website is crutchesandspice.com, at Imani underscore Barbarin on Twitter, and then at crutches underscore and underscore spice on TikTok and Instagram. Awesome. Well, Imani, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I always love when other people with ADHD are on the podcast with me because I feel like, oh, we can just be ourselves. We can just non sequitur through the next hour together. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I am going to say goodbye to everyone now. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.